الحمد لله وحده والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده أما بعد You know brothers and sisters it is awkward to be talking about institutes and knowledge when we know what is happening in the holiest of holy places and at times there is this sense of fighting a battle that isn't quite the most important battle and I get that we all get that as we speak, you know, the, the, the toll has already cost 10,000 lives, subhanAllah. More people have been massacred on live TV. Literally, we're getting updates every single hour. Then we're massacred in Srebrenica and Bosnia. More children have been killed in the last three weeks than in all global conflicts of this century. And yes, so here we are talking about an institute of knowledge. And it's very easy for us to wonder... Why? Isn't there something better to do? Isn't there something more important for the ummah to do? And the fact of the matter is that there are multiple good things we can be doing. But one of them, one of them is to be brave enough and courageous enough to understand that even at times of grief and stress, even at times as dire as these, we need to think not one, three to five to ten steps ahead. We need to have a vision, not just for tomorrow, but for the next generation. And that requires a sense of courage, a sense of stamina that we can only get from the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, one of the stories of the seerah that really, it, it moves me beyond, I can't express how it makes me personally feel, knowing how much our Prophet ﷺ loved his ummah, knowing that he sacrificed for his ummah, knowing that, as you all know in the one hadith, a bit of a tangent here, as you all know in the hadith that, Every prophet is given one special dua that they're guaranteed to answer, right? And every prophet used that dua in this world. There's only one prophet that took that special request and he kept it. He kept it to his heart. He did not use it even though he's being tortured to death. He's seen Uhud. He's seen his uncle. He's seen so many things. And he did not use that one guaranteed dua because he said, I kept it for my ummah on the day of judgment. That's how much love he had for us sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The dua was the entirety of my ummah, I want them to enter Jannah eventually. Anybody who says the kalima, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, they shall enter Jannah because our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam saved that special dua. Somebody with that much love, I want you to imagine back in Mecca, the third, fourth year of the da'wah, and he passes by Bilal being dragged in the streets. He passes by Yasir and Sumayya, and they're literally being tortured to death. The first shuhada, as you know, Yasir, the, the one my father named me after, that's Sahabi, he was literally martyred by two camels or two horses being told to go in opposite directions and his body torn apart as a type of joke in Mecca. And Sumayya, you know, she was stabbed in her private areas with a javelin. How do you think he felt? How do you think he felt when he saw the very people who embraced Islam because of him? Because of his akhlaq, because they trusted him, and he could not protect them in this dunya. All he could say as he would pass by them, Sabran ala yasir fa inna mawidakumul jannah. 
That's all he could say. Be patient. I can't help you now, but your reward is in Jannah. Be patient, but Allah will help you in the Akhirah. And the same goes for the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the famous incident. When Abu Jandal came, the famous incident. When Abu Jandal comes and he's literally... The the shackles are around his hand. The torture is imminent on his body. He's literally bleeding. He's been trapped in a dungeon in Mecca for months. And as you're aware in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, as you're aware, right, when, this, when the final signatory is going to happen and uh, the, the uh, Suhail ibn Amr is there and he's trying to negotiate with the Prophet wasallam, and he says that we will make a condition that any Muslim from your side who comes to Mecca, he's not going to be returned. But any person from Mecca who migrates to Medina, you have to return him. And they said, that's not fair. They're still negotiating. Before they write it down, and Abu Jandal comes. Abu Jandal, the, the, the torture is clear. He's heard the Muslims are outside. And he manages to break free and run outside thinking, I'm safe. Thinking, finally I'm here. I can see the Muslims. I'm not going to have to go back. And the Prophet ﷺ turns and says, okay, I'll agree to the condition, but only after this one we save him. At least let us save this one. Let us save Abu Jandal. And nope, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. We're not going to allow you. Our Prophet attempted five, six, seven times. In my reading of the seerah, I have never seen our Prophet negotiate with more passion, more frequently, only to be told, no, 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 no compromise. And even Umar ibn al-Khattab, can you imagine the scene? Even Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anh, he's fuming. How can this happen? Ya Rasulullah, we will accept humility, we will accept humiliation, and we are the people of Allah. How can we allow this to happen? Even he radiallahu anh, could not understand. And he marched close to Abu Jandal with his sword on his, on, his, you know, uh, on his belt, and he's pointing here. You take it, I can't help you. Maybe you can do it and do whatever you want. That's how he felt. And yet our Prophet could only say to him, may Allah make a sabil for you. May Allah make a way out for you. Because sometimes strategy requires that you think long term. You don't necessarily have to win every single battle for today. And so yes, wallahi, I do understand. But I look at the seerah. And I look at our Prophet and I know that he felt infinitely more compassion than we do now. He felt the pain and the burden of the violence and bloodshed against his own community. Complete injustice. And yet he understood that the mission is bigger than this one small issue and cause. The overall mission of Islam, mission, the mission of this deen is bigger than one particular issue. Even though, yes, we tie it all to that issue. And so, yes, I'm here to tell you, Part of what we need to do, a part, and I'm not going to say exclusively, a part of what we need to do, even in these difficult and dire times, is to think 10 steps ahead and to understand and appreciate that the fundamental backbone of our religion, the permeating thread that every single aspect of our religion is linked to, is the backbone and the thread of knowledge. Ilm. Ilm is where everything begins. You want any proof for this? The entirety of the seerah shows this. What did our Prophet do for 13 years in Mecca? There was no state. 
There was no political establishment. There was no waging war and jihad. There was nothing except the preaching of ilm. It was teaching and preaching. That is the backbone of this entire faith tradition. For 13 years, that's all the Prophet was doing because Islam and all that we do, its entirety, it begins with knowledge. You want evidence for this? Look at the Quran. Look at the first three revelations and it will explain to you the philosophy of Islam. Look at the first three revelations and it will summarize for you the entirety of our religion. The first revelation when our Prophet is sitting in Ghari Hira, the first revelation, in a land, in a society, in a place and time where hardly anybody read and write. There was not a single madrasa in all of Arabia. There was not a single library, a shelf of books. There was not a single shelf of books in the entire land of Arabia. Civilizations were up north and down south. Arabia did not have an academic civilization. In that civilization, what did Allah begin with? Iqra. You need to read. And our Prophet said, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read. Nobody knows how to read. We're not taught how to read and write. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then said, No, but your qira'ah is not reading. Because qira'ah means two things. Qira'ah can mean to read from a book. And qira'ah can mean to recite. To recite, not necessarily from a book. Our Prophet understood iqra' from a book. I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read. And then Jibreel tells him, Jibreel recites to him. Jibreel reveals through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wahi. Jibreel reveals, your reading is not from a book. You don't need the books of men. You don't need encyclopedias. In your case, Ya Rasulullah, the fact that you cannot read and write, in your case, it will flip over and become something of pride and honor. Anybody else, if they cannot read and write, it's not something to be proud of. But in your case, Ya Rasulullah, it is something to be proud of. And Allah will call you an nabi al-Ummi, the unlettered prophet. Because for you, you don't need to read and write. Why would you need to read the writings of men when Allah Azza wa Jal is communicating directly to you? You shall recite from Allah, through Allah, with Allah. Your recitation is not from men. It is from Allah directly. You shall be the conduit through which Allah shall communicate to mankind. Your qira'ah will be the wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So everything begins with what? With knowledge, with qira'ah, with reading. Everything begins with that first foundation. The second foundation. What is the second surah revealed? Ya ayyuhal muzzammil, qum al-layla illa qalila, nisfahu aw inqus minhu qalila. Once you learn the basics, you had better start applying it. Start praying, start tahajjud. That's what the Prophet is being told. You have to really make sure your personal akhlaq, your personal ibadah is down on par. So once you learn iqra, the next thing, ya ayyuhal muzzammil, qum al-layla illa qalila, nisfahu aw inqus minhu qalila, aw zid alayhi wa rattil al-Qur'an tartila, inna sanulqi alayka qawlan thaqila. The book is going to be heavy. The book is going to be heavy. You need to prepare for that through your spirituality. So after ilm, spirituality. After knowledge, your personal ibadat, your qira'ah, your dhikr, your akhlaq, your reading the, the Quran in the middle of the night. That's the second revelation. Then what is the third one? Ya ayyuhal muddathir قُمْ فَأَنذِرْ وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرْ وَالرُّجْزَ فَهْجُرْ وَلَا تَمْنُنْ تَسْتَكْفِرْ A list of actions, do's. This is what you need to do. You need to preach to the others. You need to purify. You need to do this and that. So action comes after when? What is action? 
after in and personal tazkiyah. Now you do your actions. Actions come in the very third category. This shows us the philosophy of our faith tradition. What is the ultimate and the beginning backbone? It is the backbone of ilm. And this is where at times like this, we really have to think long term. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari has that famous chapter in his book, Bab al-Ilm Qabla al-Qawli wal-Amal. The chapter of knowledge before you say anything or do anything. Knowledge comes before actions. Knowledge comes before preaching and teaching. And that is why, regardless of what is happening in the world, one segment of the ummah must always be continuously engaged in knowledge. In fact, in Surah in Surah At-Tawbah, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? That فَلَوْلَا نَفَّرَ مِنْ كُلِّ فِرْقَةٍ مِنْهُمْ طَائِفَةٌ يَتَفَقَّهُ فِي الدِّينِ وَلِيُنْذِرُ قَوْمَهُمْ إِذَا رَجَعُ إِلَيْهِمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ Allah Azza wa says in the Quran that even when people need to go and engage in actual physical battle, when the situation is dire, Allah says make sure some of you remain behind. Don't leave the entirety of people. Some need to remain behind. And what should they do? They understand the fiqh of the religion. Literally, this is in the Quran. Even when the situation is dire and the imam and the khalifa calls out, everybody go and defend. Even then Allah says, ah, but, but there's one aspect needs to continue. And that aspect, scholarship. Scholarship needs to remain because it is the ultimate backbone. It is how we will situate ourselves. Scholarship is our moral compass. Scholarship is what we need to tap into so that we can think forward. So without scholarship, we are nothing. And you want to speak about Aqsa? You want to speak about you want to speak about Bilad al-Sham? You want to speak about the Crusades and whatnot? I just gave a khatira. Maybe some of you listened to it. I'm going to develop a little bit more from that. Even during this time frame, because again, most of us, we, we have a very... Superficial understanding of Islamic history. Wallahi, that is true. We have a very idealized understanding of Islamic history. And our history, wallahi, it's, it's, it has its ups and downs, right? We love to look at the ups and we ignore the negatives. And I have said many times, our religion is divine. Our history is very human. Our religion is divine. Our history is very human. And once you study history, you have to resituate yourself. Fact of the matter, fact of the matter is that we lost, we lost Al-Aqsa. Despite the fact that we had a powerful civilization, why did we lose Al-Aqsa in the first crusades? Why did we lose it? Multiple reasons, but there was so much internal warfare, so much bickering, and also a really awkward thing to say. There was really overall a, 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 a lack of piety and taqwa. It's really awkward to say this, but the, that's just a fact of the matter. You know, Alcohol was rampant in that time frame, in those lands. Again, we have a very naive, romanticized version of the past. And I don't like mentioning these awkward facts, but I mention them because, frankly, if we have naive understandings of how to proceed, if we have utopic, idealistic, you know, idyllic, really, just grandiose understandings of what's going to happen, then we're just going to remain immobile doing nothing because we're expecting the Mahdi to come with Jibil on his side. It doesn't work that way. When you study history, you realize there's the good, there's the bad, there's the beautiful, there's the ugly, and you have to negotiate. Even some of our heroes of medieval times, they have darker sides as well. I've tried to reference, reference that in the past. The founder of of the Zengid dynasty, I'm not mentioning his name, look him, the founder of the Zengid dynasty, whom we aggrandize. You know how he died? 
drunken stupor. I mean, just a fact. I'm sorry to bl- be blunt to you, but there was good from him, but he died because his, his slave stole from his liquor, literally. And in the middle of the night, he woke up and he goes, oh, you're, you're stealing from my liquor? I'm going I'm gonna, to I'm gonna punish you in the next morning. And the slave's like, I'm not waiting for you to punish me. He kills him in the middle of the night. This is the founder of the Zangid dynasty, right? Well, that's the founder, but then Nuruddin comes along. Nuruddin, he's not the founder. Nuruddin comes along. And Nuruddin is a different character. Nuruddin, without a doubt, as one of the chroniclers, Ibn al-Athir, he mentions, Ibn al-Athir is the great historian, one of the greatest historians. Ibn al-Athir mentions that when I read the seerah with the biography of Nuruddin al-Zangi, the only person I can think of in the past that resembles him is Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and before him the Khulafa al-Rashidun. Like from the time of the Khulafa, you have Umar and then you have Nuruddin Zangi. Like even Ibn al-Athir is saying, this guy is legendary. Nuruddin is one of those few people genuinely pious, you know, living the life of a Zahid, even though he's the ruler. And remember, Nuruddin did not conquer Jerusalem, right? Nuruddin paves the way. And by the way, even Nuruddin, he's a politician. There are things about him that, you know, politicians have to do. It is what it is. But overall, his heart is in the right place. And you know one of the things that he does? Nuruddin brings an entire revival of knowledge and religiosity. While Aqsa is burning under the crusaders, because Nuruddin did not free Aqsa. While Aqsa is doing what it is doing, right? Nuruddin has two visions. Number one is the jihad, number one is the military, and number two, it is the intellectual. And so what does Nuruddin do? Nuruddin, and this is part of the research that I did not only for my PhD, but I'm continuing doing this research. May Allah make it easy to write and give more lectures. I travel so much because of these guys, I don't have time to give more lectures. But inshallah, let's hope to. I always say I'm going to retire this year, but it doesn't work. SubhanAllah, so much you know, to do. Wallahi, I wish I could stay in my library and just write and type and give durus. But I have to travel and that kind of diminishes some of the lectures I'm giving. But I'm doing research on this. I actually have uh, uh, you know, uh, research done on the Zengid and the Salah al-Din Ayyubis, the Ayyubid dynasty and the intellectual revival that they've done. So the Zengid dynasty, Nuruddin al-Zengi, one of the things that he did, I'm chronicling right now, I have written down over 15 madrasas. Over 15 madrasas that Nuruddin either revived and, and sponsored or founded from scratch. Founded, he literally founded madrasa from his own personal wealth and from donors that he knew and some of them from the public treasury, which he's allowed to do. And of course, the most famous madrasa, of course, I mean, this is understood, they name it after themselves. This is the reality, Anuriya. Nuruddin, Anuriya. Just like Salah Hadin had the Salahiyya, right? This is, well, it is no problem. We don't care. I mean, you want to found it for years, just found some madrasas. You, you guys take the credit, no problem. We need madrasas, right? While the crusades are happening, He's making sure that 15 madrasas are sponsored. By the way, Mufti Saab, take note of this. He sponsors. What is Nuruddin's madhab? Do you know? Hanafi, mashallah. But guess what? He sponsors multiple madrasas of other madhabs. <laughs> He's so broad-minded even though he himself is Hanafi, and in a time when there was some sectarianism between the madhabs, right? And yes, it is true, most of his madhabs were Hanafi. It is true. That's fine, we give him that. But subhanAllah, he founded multiple Shafi'i madrasas. He founded one or two Hanbali, or founded means he supported, I should say. He supported multiple Hanbali madrasas. He understood that it's not just my school that I need to support. 
This is what you call visionary, right? That's why I'm fundraising for your school, even though I have a school as well, the Islamic Seminary of America. Let me plug that in for free. But we need scholarship. We need scholarship to flourish, right? We all have our madrasas here, and we want all madrasas to flourish. It's a win-win for all of us, right? Just like Nuruddin. So he founds the Nuriya. Now listen to this. Again, this is something that I've, I've uncovered, really interesting tidbit of history. I haven't said this in a khatara. So when I do say it, you can say, oh, I listened to it first in the Maftah fundraiser. Eventually, I'll mention it in the khatara as well. Maybe next week we'll give it. So this is an interesting tidbit. Of course, Nuruddin never lived to see the conquest of Jerusalem, right? Salah ad Ayyubi is the one who conquers Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem is conquered, obviously you need to repopulate it with ilm and ulama, with madrasas, with shuyukh, right? And subhanallah, guess who he chooses to become basically the first mufti and the first qadi and the first faqih of Aqsa that's conquered now. The first Islamic lecture in 100 years is going to be the rector of Nuriya school that Nuruddin Zangi founded, subhanallah. Even though Nuruddin did not live to see the conquest, the intellectual you know, seeds that he planted, the madrasa that he himself built, the rector of that madrasa was the one who eventually Salah Haddin says, okay, you're the most qualified guy, come. And so the first time Allah's name is mentioned, the salah is led, the Quran is recited, the first time ilm is taught after 100 years, actually Nuruddin planted it, even though he didn't live to see that. This is what you call visionary. I gave a, 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 a khatra last week, uh, last week, I don't want to repeat it, about the foundations of the Salah Hadin Ayyubis, you know, what happened in the interim. And I mentioned Ibn al-Khashab, right? The first the first person who literally, you know, um, raised the flag of, how do we say this politely, struggling for the cause of Allah. We have to be careful here, right? So raise the flag of, I'm not as brave as Dr. Jawad because I have different uh, backgrounds and whatnot. Dr. Jawad will get away with things I might not get away with. Allah mustan. I say all the time, if Noam Chomsky had brown skin and a beard, he'd be sitting in Guantanamo. Okay, that's just a fact of the matter. Chomsky will get away because of his white privilege. And so we have to look at who we are. Because of my background, I will say scholars wrote treatises about struggling in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they kept this reality alive. Who sponsored those scholars? Nuruddin Zangi. Nuruddin Zangi, Ibn Asakir, Ibn Asakir, that great scholar, every student of knowledge thinks of Ibn Asakir as a historian. No, of course he's a historian. Ibn Asakir was writing history and reviving the, the, the legacy of Aqsa, the legacy of Jerusalem, because this is how you're going to keep the spirit alive. How will the spirit of Aqsa be kept alive? Through knowledge. And so Ibn Asakir is supported by the Zangids as well. Even though he wrote all about history, he didn't get involved in the struggle actually, but this is the intellectual struggle. He kept the memory alive, right? Other scholars as well. Zainul Islam al-Harawi, the first one to go to the Sultan, to the Khalifa, and literally chastise the Khalifa. Another scholar from Afghanistan, from Herat. Afghanistan, he was the chief Qadi of Damascus. And when, and when Aqsa was first rampaged, was first you know, taken over, it was Zainul Islam al-Harawi. He closed his book, he goes, there's no more time for teaching, I need to have bigger priorities. And he traveled from Damascus all the way to Baghdad, and he made his way to the Khalifa's palace through hook and by crook. You'll listen to the story in the Khatara. He made his way and he challenged the Khalifa. How can you be sitting here doing nothing when Aqsa is burning? The first person to raise the conscience of the Ummah was an Alim. And then Ibn al-Khashab, the first person to say, guys, you can't just sit back. You need to struggle for the liberation. And he riled up the people to do that. And the first major victory that took place on the battlefield, 
Ibn al-Khashab was the one in that battle. And interestingly enough, I gave the story. It's really interesting. You know, in those days, professors had a garb and warriors had their helmets and whatnot. Ibn al-Khashab came out to the battlefield wearing his professorial garb with the turban of the professor, the turban and the garb of the professor. So much so that when the crusaders saw him, Baldwin was on the other side. The ruler of Jerusalem fought with Ibn al-Khashab. Not in Jerusalem, it was outside. But still, you're actually getting, you know, you're getting there, right? Ibn al-Khashab rode out on his horse and the crusaders laughed. What is a professor doing? What is a, an alim doing here? He turned his back to the crusaders because his goal, he's not the warrior, he's the sheikh and alim. His goal, he turns to the warriors and he gives the khutbah. The entire crusaders could see that the army is riled up. The army is ready to fight. People are crying, shouting, and the crusaders realize this isn't no ordinary professor here. This professor, this sheikh, he is the one that's, in, that's really riling up the spirit, keeping that spirit alive. And that victory was the first main major victory against the crusaders and it was Ibn al-Khashab who single-handedly instigated it riled up the people and then was on the battlefield again sisters and brothers we have to think so many steps ahead one of the things by the way interesting anecdote here also I found out from, from, from the Zengids right this you can use it in your classes because you guys are Hanafi I'm Hanbali I studied in the Hanbali but we're all good alhamdulillah but this is a Hanafi uh, nukta for you guys huh one of the scholars that Nuruddin Zengi sponsored. What does sponsoring mean, by the way? Sponsoring was something very common in the past, right? And this was that great uh, politicians, when they saw somebody who was really beneficial to the ummah, they literally said, okay, this is a waq for you. You do you. You do your teaching. You know the concept of endowment chairs, right? This comes from our awqaf. The concept of endowment chairs in, in professorial colleges and universities. Because what an endowment chair does is that it allows independence. It allows free thought. It allows people that are qualified to just preach and teach. So the Ibn al-Khashab, uh, sorry, Az-Zengi, Nuruddin Az-Zengi, he had these types of endowed chairs. And one of the people that he endowed uh, all of you studying in the Hanafi Madhab, you know this very well. And that is the author of Bada'i'u Sana'ir. Who is the author of Bada'i'u Sana'ir? Who is the author of Bada'i'u Sana'ir? Come on, Yari, you should know this much. Mufti Sab, who is the author? Now I want to quiz you. Kasani. Kasani was actually sponsored by Nuruddin Zangi. And of course, by the way, Kasani's story, you know Mr. Romance here? He thinks he's Mr. Romance. Actually, uh, let me not say too much, but anyway. Kasani's Bada'i Sana'ir is actually one of the most romantic fiqh stories. <laughs> so Kasani's teacher was a Samarqandi. And a Samarqandi uh, had a book called Tuhfat al-Talib, which nobody actually studies and reads. It's hardly ever printed. And he had, mashallah, a number of daughters. One of them, her name was Fatima. And Fatima was known to be, mashallah, faqiha, alima, and mashallah, Jamila as well, okay? All of the hasna was in her. And she got suitors from all over the world. It is even said that princes, you know, uh, gave for her hand, but she refused all of them. And so our guy, Kasani, he knew the key to her heart was through fiqh, mashallah, mashallah, right? And so he took her father's book, Samarqandi's book, Tuhfa, and he wrote a magnificent commentary, which is called Bada'i'u Sana'ir. All of you, uh, you know, Hanafi guys, you know this. One of the classical books in Hanafi school. And he gifted it to the father. And he said, this is for the mahar of your daughter. This is the mahar of your daughter. So Bada'i Rasana is actually the mahar. 
right? Literally. And the father and daughter willingly accepted that this is the mahar for. So indeed, Kasani married Fatima bint Samarqandi, and uh, the book Bada'ir Sana'a became the mahar for the marriage, right? So what was your mahar, by the way? Anyway, so let's not, uh, let's not, uh, which book did you write, Sheikh Salman? Okay. Um, so we have a teasing thing going on, but don't worry, alhamdulillah. Uh, where was I? Went into complete different tangents. Zangi, Nuruddin Zangi. Imagine part-time warrior by day, sponsoring ilm by night. This is who Zangi was. Why? Because in his khilafa, or not so sultanate, he's not a khalifa, in his sultanate, society began to change. He literally, like, go read Ibn al-Athir, go read the books of history. The khammarat began to shut down. What are the khammarat? I'm sorry to break your bubble, the pubs. There were places to drink alcohol. Again, we have this really idealistic notion of the past. I'm sorry, learn and read your history. This is the reality of us. We're all weak. They're all gonna... In his reign, gambling and vices and these dens of iniquity, they began to shut down. Why? Because he's sponsoring ilm and ulama. This is what happens when you organically, not like some of the harsh regimes, we're going to start with, with, with the force. No, you cannot force people without a backlash. Organically, you help through ulama. You bring preachers and teachers. You open madaris. This is what Nuruddin Zangi did. And when you do that, what happens? The love. You know, in the end of the day, wallahi, the average Muslim loves Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, loves the messenger. And if you just approach with the right tools, the right equipment, they're going to want to come to you. But if you come with the dandi, if you come with the lakri, if you come with the stick, right? I'm sorry with the Arabs here. If you come with the khashab and you're like, I want to just... You're going to turn people away. This is not the way to preach. So Nuruddin Zangi understood this. He laid the foundation. And in one generation, subhanAllah, there was an overall revival of the deen. This is well known and documented. That revival paved the way for the next generation. And that next generation included who? Salahuddin Ayyubi and the entire entourage. You needed Zangi. You needed that intellectual revival to pave the way for the future. So again, I can go on and on, sisters and brothers, but you know, I understand it's frustrating for us when politically things are so dire, but I'm somebody who my reading of history shows me time and time again that the backbone of revival always is going to come from the intellectual side, from the visionary side, from the side of ilm. And this is why we need to come together and support every single institute of knowledge. And I'm saying this as somebody who, again, I don't teach for miftah, but wallahi, as Allah is my witness, it makes my heart so happy to see institutes like miftah and so many others flourishing. Again, sisters and brothers, I want to conclude on a personal note here. I started my journey to religion to study, you know, my, my first sheikh in America, 1991, right? 1991, when there was hardly anybody that spoke English fluently and had knowledge. And that era, 1991, there were no institutes of learning in all of North America. There were no, nothing like this. There was no seminary. There was no sheikh that spoke English as a mother tongue. I don't want to mention names, but all of the names you know, they weren't preaching in 91, 92. They weren't. The people that I had to study with were either minor students 
or shuyukh that spoke Urdu or Arabic as a mother language. In fact, that's one of my incentives for going to study Islam. I was born in the 70s in Houston, Texas. There was no khutbah I attended in English because the people that were there were either Arabs or Desis. And I spoke neither fluent Urdu nor fluent Arabic at the time. My entire childhood, and I had no connection with the masjid. Why? Because I didn't understand a single khutbah. Nothing. That was one of the incentives that caused me as an adult in chemical engineering, University of Houston. I don't know my faith. I, I've memorized the Quran at home as a Desi, not knowing a single thing of Arabic. Memorized the entire Quran. I don't even know what it means. It was so, like, it really hurt me that I've memorized this book. I can't even understand it. And it really made me feel empty inside. I had to give up everything and go overseas. But times have changed in the last 35 years. Alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah. There's institutes galore. Every state has massive institutes. Every single large community has multiple you know, students of knowledge and even ulama that speak English as a mother tongue. The world has changed and is changing even more so. So the way I look at it, wallahi, there's things that make me cry, but there's other things that make me aspire, that make me look forward and happy. The future is bright, brothers and sisters. The future is bright. And indeed, the tide is changing, not just for Palestine, but for Islam and the Ummah. There is a global revival going on around the entire world. Look around you, in every country, in every land, and especially in places you would never think. Here in America, look around you. Who would believe we have a madrasa like this one? Who would believe hundreds of students are studying here memorizing the Quran and it is but one of so many other dozens and if not more madrasas across this country alhamdulillah thumma alhamdulillah the future is bright we are seeing a tidal wave of change and we are riding that wave but the goal is are we going to push it even more forward are we going to incentivize it even more that's what we're here for may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow every one of us to be a part of that change may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be visionaries movers and thinkers shakers who understand that the real revival is going to take maybe two, three, four decades. But this is what we need to do right now. We are doing what Nuruddin Zengi did. We don't have a Zengi anymore, but collectively, all of us together, we can come together. We can help institutes. We can found madaris. We can build professorial chairs. And slowly but surely, that knowledge will trickle down to the masses. There is going to be a revival. We are seeing that revival. We're witnessing that revival. We are a part of that revival. Bible. So let us help whatever we can. Let us be a part of this change. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our own lifetimes to see the fruits of this result. We ask Allah that Masjid al-Aqsa is freed in our own lifetimes. We ask Allah for peace and stability in that land and region. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show us the izzah and glory of Islam through His righteous servants and to make us amongst them. Wajazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wa barakatuh. ويا خجلي إذا ما قال لي ربي أما استحييته تعصيني ولا تخشى من العتب وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وتأبى في الهوى قربي فتب مما جنيت عسى تعود إلى رضا